All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck ups? What the fucksters? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckleberry fins? What the fuckstables? Oh, man. How's it going? I am Mark Marin. This is WTF. Welcome to the show. If you're new to the show, welcome. 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 You're in a safe place. <laughs> if you're new to the show and you enjoy it, you might realize that only the most recent 50 episodes are up there on iTunes or on our site. But if you go get that app, the free WTF app, and upgrade to the premium for a few bucks, you can stream the other 400. 400 hours talking. Mostly one-on-one with people I kind of know or I think I know or I don't know at all. That's got to be analogous to some sort of flight hours. In-flight hours. What are they called? Logging. I, I don't know. I, I didn't read the Malcolm Gladwell thing. I don't know about all that. I don't know what it makes me good at, necessarily. Pow! Look out. I just shit my pants. Just coffee.coop available at WTFpod.com. That was a classic. A classic just coffee plug, he said, about something he does himself that was established early on in his show. So look, yeah, Dr. Phil Stutz is on the show, and some of you might... Uh, might remember he was uh, he was talked about uh, on the Hank Azaria episode. Hank Azaria was on this show and talked about his therapist here in Los Angeles. Phil Stutz is a medical doctor, psychiatrist. Wrote a book called The Tools. Hank Azaria, as said on my show, is one of Phil Stutz's patients. And I will play you a bit of Hank Azaria talking about Phil Stutz in just a moment. But back to what's happening in my life, if that's okay. So I'm, it's before I go to set. I'm shooting Marin Season 2, and uh, I, I'm having a good time. It's a lot of work. Obviously, it got me sick. It ran me down. But it's my show. It's got my name on it, and I'm enjoying it, and the scripts are good, and I think uh, I have a, uh, I'm grounded. I have a, a clearness of mind and spirit. To uh, I think I'm doing a better job acting. But uh, but yesterday was sort of an amazing day. Um, in the episode that uh, one of the episodes that I wrote, um, you know, my family, as some of you know, on the show, uh, Judd Hirsch played my father, and Sally Kellerman played my mother briefly in one one sequence where we weren't even together in the room. Really, she was on the phone with me. Well, now she's back for a couple episodes, and we did a family oriented episode with a guy playing my brother. Troy Ruptash plays my brother, but so I got them all in the room. I got Sally Kellerman and Judd Hirsch. We're at a table in a dinner scene, and I'm watching Sally Kellerman and Judd Hirsch having an argument right in front of me, front row seats for these amazing actors, these amazing characters. And I was, uh, what do they say in Yiddish? Kvelling. I was, it was, I was ecstatic. I love Sally Kellerman, and uh, the fact that she's playing my mother is just mind blowing to me. To see somebody with all that history and all that talent and, and still sort of focus. It was, it was fucking outrageous. Outrageous. And uh, it was my life. It is my life. I guess I'm bragging. I'm not bragging. I'm just sharing experience with you. Then we did another episode. I don't know if I can tip that one. But there's an episode sort of loose. It's all loosely based on things either in my head or actually in my life where I have a guest on the show and I, and I want to know whether or not... Because I, I wonder this in real life, you know, does 
how far does the relationship go? Here we have this wonderful conversation and do, can we hang out? Are we going to hang out? Can we hang out? There are people I've had in here where I'm like, all right, so we just, we, we had a pretty intense talk for an hour. Can I have your number? Yeah, I might need to call you tomorrow, uh, Iggy. But it never happens. I, I uh, to be honest with you, I, I don't, I, I have not, I don't hang out outside of my, a couple of guys that I know well, or I see at comedy clubs. I don't hang out with many people at all, uh, in general. Not, uh, you know, I don't, I don't spend that much time with people. Uh, I spend time with myself, and uh, if there's a lady in my life, I'll spend time with her until I, I drain them of their life essence. That's not true. It goes both ways. But, uh. But I always wonder, like, could I just give him a call? Could we just have lunch? Could we go out? Could I come over to their house? Maybe, you know, and also there's the issue that I'm not really a guy guy in that way, but whatever. But there's a whole episode about that, about a celebrity that comes in here. And I'm like, well, maybe we could be friends. And I go at him. I try to be their friend. That's uh, that's one of the episodes. Can't tell you the celebrity. I know it's, I'm a tease, but uh, he was great. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about uh, therapy. Okay, I, I know I'm rambling, but look, you know, it's the holiday season. Some of you are into to listening to me talk. What others, you know, just you know, move on. Move on. Just let us talk. You can just fucking forward your way into whatever the hell you want. Turn it off. I don't care. But some of us are talking. So why don't you let the grown-ups talk? Okay? Uh, about midway through the show, Marin started yelling at uh, people he assumed were not listening to his intro. And that's where I checked out. Look. I've been in therapy in my life. A lot of you think I'm neurotic or I'm self-obsessed and I'm like, you know, a, a classic Jewish nutbag who has spent his life in therapy. Not true. Went for years and years without therapy. The reason I'm saying this, is I got Phil Stutz on in a minute. And uh, I was trying to like make a list of the therapists I've had in my life. There's only been like five or six at different periods of my life. I remember the first therapist my parents brought me to I was probably in third or fourth grade. Who the hell knows what the problem could have fucking been? But I think they brought me to a guy named Hudson, who was a child psychiatrist. And I don't remember anything about that other than the guy wore tinted glasses, had a crew cut, was overweight, and brought me into a room full of board games and sat me down and said, which one do you want to play? Uh, as a metaphor for life, if we make that guy the sort of mythic god, they, you know, it, it sort of, it, it makes sense. I don't know. That's a good question. That scene as a metaphor for that moment in life, I'm not sure which board game or game I decided to play, but I have no idea how to get out of it. That's all I remember about that guy. And then when I was in high school or junior high and I was, there was motivation problems, Mark doesn't seem to be interested. He's got a bad attitude. We don't know what to do with him because we have no parenting skills. There was this other guy, Dr. Carey, I think his name was, who was good with teenagers. You know, the guy who's good with teenagers. He was good. I went to group therapy. That was interesting. Fell madly in love with this girl, Lisa, who was uh, two years older than me. I remember talking group therapy, getting a few jokes out. I remember I enjoyed going, you know, more than Hebrew school anyways. I remember uh, just uh, being in love with this girl, and then uh, and then she tried to commit suicide. And I remember visiting her in the hospital, not really understanding any of it. I was young, didn't understand any of it. And uh, I remember, 
I brought some music because you want to listen to uh, music. Um, I brought Steve Miller because that's what she wanted to listen to. And I just kind of remember her playing, you know, kind of like doing air guitar to like a Steve Miller song, Fly Like an Eagle with bandaged wrists. Uh, moving on, uh, there was a guy in college I saw. He was, uh, I think, a gay gentleman. What did I learn from that guy? How to gaze deeply at somebody, like right through their fucking being, and seemingly not paying attention whatsoever. It's a trick, people. It's a trick. That guy had skills. Thought he was burning through me with his eyeballs, but I don't think he was paying attention at all. Then there was uh, the D'Onofrio out on Long Island when I was in New York. What did I learn from that guy? That sometimes therapists just enjoy listening to you talk. You can get some good laughs out of them. Uh, they just seem to <laughs> enjoy having you there more than you really need them. He was good, though. He was good. Oh, there was Dr. Rosenfeld in San Francisco. What I learned from that guy? I learned a couple of things. That guy was intense. I related to that guy. He seemed troubled. I hope he's all right. Jonathan Rosenfeld, are you all right? Are you doing well? Because now I'm concerned about you. What I learned from him, I liked him. I was going through torment, toil before I got sober. What I learned from him was you can train your parents because eventually they want to have a relationship with you of any kind. What else did I learn? Oh, he's the one that told me there's no such thing as boredom, only fear. That thing kind of kicks around my brain a lot. There was one guy I remember getting a psyche valve when I was in rehab in 1988. A psychiatrist comes in to do a psyche eval with me. And at that time, I had to wear certain rings to protect myself from certain things. I had to wear skull rings. I had to have pinky rings. One was a snake, one was a skull. I had to wear skulls on my shirt. I was a little out of my mind. Cocaine psychosis. And this, psych this psychiatrist walks in. He's a youngish guy, complete nerd. Kind of like a doughy nerd. You know, like a, you know, sort of like, you know, pants a little too high, belt, shirt tucked in, goofy... Uh, nerd glasses and this was before nerds were were cool but i judged him i'm like what's up with this guy <laughs> how is this guy a psychiatrist and he sat down and started talking to me and i noticed he was wearing this large dragon ring which i assume was part of some game <laughs> i don't know what he was into it was definitely a dragon ring and he's looking at me seriously saying you know i'm explaining to him my system of protection with my pinky rings and uh, what they meant. And then I said, what does your dragon ring mean? And he seemed very flustered and uh, taken aback and took, from, took him a few, few seconds to get his composure. I think I, think, uh, I think I was talking to the dungeon master. Either it was part of a, uh, a board game community or, or he was into some deep shit. And now I got my guy. And now I'm seeing a guy. But I, in and out. Oh, Kirk. Kirk. The guy who I went to in the, you know, when I was crushed from that second divorce in New York, Kirk. Primal union. That's what I learned from that guy. That I was in search of primal union. That because my parents or my mother never fully detached from me or let me go and develop my own sense of self, you know, I'm constantly looking for that unconditional primal union, that connection with others and i gotta put a cap on that shit man reel it in Marin. reel it in it's not everyone's job to parent you all right look 
Now, as promised, I have a, a bit of my Hank Azaria interview where he's talking about my guest today, uh, Dr. Phil Stutz, who is his therapist. The reason I wanted to put it right up against the intro is, uh, you know, I wanted you to, to, you know, to hear how close Hank's impression of Phil is. And this is a very uh, compelling interview uh, with a guy who's got some practical advice of, uh, you know, how to keep your shit together, which never hurts. So this is this is Hank Azaria from my conversation with him talking about my guest today, Phil Stutz. I have an amazing shrink. Yeah. I don't see him too much anymore, but um, he talks like this. He kind of sees a New York guy. And yeah. He kind of he sounds like Mickey Rourke in the early days. Yeah. And he literally, he was this kind of guy. Yeah. I would be in there whining about this very stuff, yeah. and he would literally go, <laughs> he'd listen to me about 20 minutes and go, yeah, all right, shut the fuck up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Your problem is you're a fucking baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he sounds like. What? He's like, yeah, well, this this didn't happen. I didn't get this. This is all shit that if I told you it happened to somebody else, you wouldn't give a shit. But because it's to you, it's like a fucking crime. Yeah. Everybody had this shit. Grow the fuck up. And it was like the well, best thing I ever got told. What's this guy's number? <laughs> uh, he's amazing. That was Hank Azaria doing Phil Stutz. Now let's talk to the real Phil Stutz. Thank you for coming, Doctor. Okay, pleasure to be here. Dr. Stutz, right? Yeah, you can call me Phil. Phil? I can call yeah. you Phil? Yeah. You know, I had uh, I had Hank Azaria in here. Who? And, yeah, I know, I know. And uh, <laughs> good for you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he did an impression of you. And it was beautiful. Yeah. And, and I'm very excited to see, and, he, and it sounds like he got it just right. <laughs> no, I'm really self-conscious. Are you really? I, yeah, I don't think I'm going to say anything. I don't know if I can live up to his impression. No, he's, a, he's one of the great voice guys. He's great. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I have the book, you know, after I talked to, uh, to Hank, you know, we have the same publisher, and she sent me the book and said, well, you got to talk to Phil if you want. He's out there. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, of course I'm going to talk to Phil. I will take any opportunity I have to, to talk to a psychiatrist for nothing. Yeah, because uh, um, what do you mean uh, for nothing? What you, you're you're the one you're going to get something out of this this time. I, I'll pay after. It depends how the session goes. All right. I think I'm in that position. <laughs> you are. <laughs> but you got you've, you've dealt with. I your, love treating comics. You though. do? I, yeah, I'm a good audience. Very good. <laughs> you can't help them, by the way. You can just enjoy yourself. <laughs> Come on, the, you, no progress. It's impenetrable. The, the, yeah, they don't particularly want to be healed anyway. You they know. don't. <laughs> No, I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't kid around. Yeah. You know, w once they're in therapy, they're like anybody else. Yeah. You know? They always come with the initial fear, though, that if they get healthier, they're not going to be funny. Yeah, I uh, I used to have that, but I don't. Uh, I don't have that anymore. Okay. I, I, I well because it's twofold, is that I know I'm never going to be that healthy. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Me neither. Go ahead. Yeah. But there's some things I think uh, in your wiring that you you know you can, you know you can get a handle on. But yes. I mean, but fundamentally, they're they're not just going to go away unless you 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 have a lobe removed, <laughs> isn't that right? Yes, basically that's right. Uh, our philosophy is, um, you're going to have to work on yourself for the rest of your life. Problems don't have to go away, but what you do need is some kind of protocol to deal with the problems. And that's so where the book came out. That's where the that's where that comes in. That's where the book comes in. Well, yeah. what's your story? Because you seem uh, you know you're a New York guy. Yeah. Where where'd you grow up? Uh, I was in the Bronx till I was five, and then I grew up in the city, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So you, your family's from the city? Yes. 
basically. And you grew up like you know what what kind of world was it? What did your old man do? Uh, he was in the peace goods business. You know these big rolls of material. I love that. So he's a schmata guy. He's schmata guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's down on Sixth yeah. Avenue every day. Yeah, it was further down. He was yeah. down. You know, now it's so fancy where his store was. If he saw it now, he would faint. What was it like? Meatpacking or where? It was three seventy two Broadway, which was below Canal. It was all, oh, yeah. it was all textiles at that time. Yeah, yeah. He was an interesting character, though, my father, because he was a great businessman but yeah. he was a communist yeah so he was guilty about making money so he can make a lot of money but he had to get rid of it as fast as he possibly could uh, uh, really yeah uh, what, but when he got rid of it does that mean he, he he put it back uh, to good use or he just needed to buy things uh <laughs> it was probably a combination of both it's interesting that i don't think people that that dialogue really exists because i had a anymore as i had a great aunt that there was this whole sort of, you know, Jewish communist, you know, workers' yeah. rights unionizing bit of business yeah. that was, uh, that was uh, you know, common. And y you just don't hear people talk about it. No, anymore. the younger kids don't even know about it, really. Well, did he, uh, was he a union guy? Was he, uh, you know, how, how, does this, how does this communism manifest itself? What'd you well, learn? it's a funny thing. He's, you know, he had a union shop there, and yeah. the unions used to uh, really screw him, actually, and the guys <laughs> would steal from him. <laughs> Um, but he, you know, I think ideologically he couldn't really accuse them or go right up against them. He would complain to me about it. Yeah. He was the reason I became a psychiatrist. I, I was his psychiatrist by the time I was probably 12 years old. Isn't that interesting? Because well, I had a similar experience. My father is a, a very demanding, slightly bipolar fella. Uh-huh. And uh, I needed to entertain him. You, know, you I needed, did? Sure. How how did you, what was, uh, as a 12-year-old, what what were some of your father's problems that needed to be dealt with? I only had one problem, what? bankruptcy. Oh, really? Listen to this. My, my, <laughs> father, my father started his business in 1938, right in the midst of the Depression. He never had a bad year, ever. But every year he swore he was going to go bankrupt. So yeah. he'd come home and he'd say, sit down, I want to talk to you. He'd go... How would you feel if we all had to live in one room, like all five of us? <laughs> yeah. You know, as a kid, I'd say, okay, Daddy, I could do it. He'd say, how would you feel if you only had one pair of pants and they were dungarees? <laughs> that would be it. I was a kid. I didn't know. Yeah, yeah. I said, no, no, it would be, be fine. This went on night after night after night. <laughs> <laughs> every day he'd come in? and Yeah, every day. And then sometimes he he would think he forgot to lock these the, it was called the place. It wasn't yeah. called the store. Right. Forgot to lock up the place, so he'd get in the cab and he'd go downtown the place was always locked, you know. That so he had a little OCD too, huh? Yeah, he had a little bit of that too. Well, I think that's a that's a, like I mean, as a guy who talks to people for a living, I think that you know when things get chaotic and frightening, that OCD thing it, it gives you a sense that maybe you have a little control over things. I would imagine. Yes, uh, yeah, hundred percent. And then you feel like you can just go down. You know, it's like that. Like I I used to say uh, in my act sometimes, though no one understood it, is that if you're OCD, you know, it may be problematic but every time you go to see if the if the place is locked and it is you get that same feeling of satisfaction yes. so it's it's not bad yeah you lose a lot of money in tax affairs <laughs> <laughs> but you feel good every time yeah right? for a while yeah so when you uh you, and your brothers and sisters and the whole big jewish family or what i have one brother and one sister there was also a brother that died when i was nine. Oh, gee and that sealed my fate as a doctor right there how so um the family kind of cracked up after that yeah and um, my job was to fight death. Oh, really? Yeah. What did he die of? He had a rare kind of uh, kidney cancer. Oh, jeez. And he was he was gone. Uh, I'm saying about four or five months. How old was he? 
three. Oh, that's that's brutal when you're like nine, so you're cognizant of everything and you know the yeah the horror and the house and the yeah yeah a lot fell on my shoulders after that. But then just to make sure, I became a doctor. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine fell down an elevator shaft. Actually, he was pushed. The story was he fell, and he was in Metropolitan Hospital. We went to visit him. He was in the intensive care unit there. My father, as we're walking out of the hospital, my father says, that's the only profession, being a doctor. Right. I was about 15. He just wanted to make sure. The funny thing is, that's where I trained in that hospital, just by coincidence. Yeah, that was a, that's a hell of a hospital. I think my father did a couple of years in that hospital as a, as a well, I, I don't know if it would be, I think an intern. Oh, he was a doctor. Yeah, he still is, kind of. He can't work anymore, but yeah, he was a doctor. He's a surgeon. Oh. And he went to... Uh, what kind of general surgeon? No, orthopedic. Uh-huh. And, you know, he did time at Metropolitan. I remember when we saw the uh, the movie Hospital with George C. Scott. Yeah, that was filmed there. Right, right. Yeah. My father says, just like that. And I'm like, holy shit, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> was that crazy? It was pretty wild. There were junkies were running up and down the staircases, stealing drugs. You know, there wasn't real... No, no security. Listen to this. In 1972, I'm walking out of the hospital. Yeah. My shift was over in this... You know, they have these detail men from the drugstores, you know, flax trying to sell their Oh, yeah, product. sure. This guy runs up on me, and he he puts this big jar in my hand. He said, this is a great new product. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Get the fuck away from yeah. me. Leave me alone. <laughs> I take the thing home. You know what it was? What? It was a thousand quaaludes. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> knew what quaaludes <laughs> were at that time. So did that get you through the 70s? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least about half of it, anyway. <laughs> That's hilarious. So when you go, okay, so you decide to be a psychiatrist. Right. And that, and, and you, you feel that you, you were compelled just by your father's pain? Um, because you could have done anything. You could have been any kind of doctor. Yeah, I was interested in surgery, but I'll be honest, I couldn't get up early in the morning. They were up at 5 o'clock in the morning every day. Prepping? Yeah. yeah. You know, they got to make rounds before they operate. The rounds are at 7, whatever. Yeah. Um, I was good at it. I was dexterous. So dexterous. Yeah. But given the fact that I got Parkinson's, it would have been a disaster. <laughs> but, <laughs> it would have been. but you would have had a few good years. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would have had 10, 20 good years. Yeah. But uh, all right, so you decide to do uh, uh, psychiatry. So in New York, in Metropolitan Hospital, I mean, just at that time, what are we talking about? The 70s? Like yeah, 60s? 71 to 75. What were you doing? What does a, a psychiatrist do at Metropolitan Hospital? In nineteen, in the mid seventies. Um, well, the first thing I should tell you is, um, I was an intern there first, so yeah. I did medicine. So right. I was a medical intern, you know. So you're there, you know. The classic is Friday night, which is like uh, war, you know. You, yeah. you even had combat style wounds and stuff like that. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was uh, and then the amount of drugs that were and guys. The favorite drug was speedball. Uh-huh. You know what that is? It's Heroin and coke. Yeah. Yeah. Shot. Yeah. So sometimes they put in too much coke. Yeah. And then it was and there were some maniacs who would just shoot the coke straight coke. Yeah. yeah. There was one guy who st- who started to walk up and down, up and down. We c- we couldn't restrain the guy, and yeah. we had two or three big officers there. They just couldn't. St- we had to wait till he ran out of gas. It took about four hours. You know. <laughs> I've, I've been to that party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's that guy gonna swallow? But down? what it did was, you know, that hospital in the middle of the night was basically run by twenty six, twenty seven year olds. So, I mean, you don't want the public to know that. <laughs> But you become very confident because yeah. you have to make the decisions. There's nobody else there. <laughs> well, whether to call a doctor in, whether to not call a doctor in, what to do. Well, you you are the doctor. Right, okay. Um, so whether you're Whether to admit or not, how right. to treat. Right, right. 
you know, who who needs to go directly to an operating room, right. et cetera, you know, how to stabilize somebody who's bleeding out, all that stuff. So it made you confident and aggressive. Um, then, so you did a year of that. Yeah. Then, then do, you do three years of a psychiatric residency. And you <laughs> you start on the uh, psychiatric wards. You know, yeah. psychiatry is a strange field where the least experienced people get the hardest cases. It's it's the opposite of because they because they know that's a good. It, it's like uh, it's like hitting a ball against a wall. Yeah, you, you know, say that. <laughs> <laughs> or hitting your head against the wall. Right, right. You know, you know, <laughs> give him that guy. There's no help in that guy. It'll make him tough. Yeah, yeah let him practice on him. <laughs> So you like you're on the like the 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 hopeless psych ward doing that stuff? Yeah, I wouldn't say hopeless, but right. it was semi hopeless. I had an interesting experience the first or second week I was there. They bring this kid in about my age, yeah. and he's he's psychotic, and you know part of um, schizophrenia is you there's a, there's a grandiose, ill advised self importance like the president of the United States is talking to me through sure. the vents and stuff right. like that. Right. So this so I'm admitting this kid so you have to write down all his belief systems, his delusions. So I'm yeah. writing it all down and then when I'm finished I'm saying, you know, this is ridiculous what you're telling me. This can't possibly be true. You yeah. know, let me tell you what what reality is. And you yeah. know what the kid did? What? Punched me right in the face. <laughs> And when I, when I was falling to the floor, I realized, I said, the kid is right. I was disrespectful. Of his reality. Yeah, you know, you have to start out that way. I didn't make that mistake again. Yeah, the tough love thing didn't work that time. No. <laughs> Get it together, kid. Yeah, pow. That, that was it. That's a, hell, that's a hell of a lesson to learn as a psychiatrist. Yeah, there was, uh, then there was the guy that escaped from the ward naked. He yeah. took all his clothes off and he started to run up and down the ward. And he was big. This kid was big. He 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 was built like an NFL linebacker. He must have weighed about two twenty. Yeah. And uh, first he says he takes his clothes off. First he says, "I want to take a shower." Now the guards hadn't arrived yet, so we said, "Fine." Yeah. <laughs> Go take a shower. <laughs> yeah. So he's all lathered up, soaked up. <laughs> Gets out of the shower, yeah. and then he makes a beeline for the uh, door yeah. of the ward, and the, <laughs> the guard still hadn't gotten there. <laughs> so he says to the, I had my supervisor. There was a little, a little guy, like an Elmer Fudd looking guy, yeah. and the kid says, "I want to leave." And the guy <laughs> opens the door, and he ran out, butt naked, <laughs> into the street. I, yeah, he made it. I think yeah, he made it through the lobby. <laughs> In Metropolitan Hospital at that time, nobody would really give that a second look. They say, "Oh yeah, uh, that's <laughs> happening." I want to say one thing though: yeah. the, the the teachers I had, the attendings in, in in that hospital were excellent. They were very serious about teaching us and making sure we were competent. So well, one of the, one of the, well, well, that's great. I mean, and, and one of the things that you know you, you you sort of talk about in the book, the tools, is that you know over over years of of being a, a practitioner, that you know you hit a certain wall. Uh, with how uh, you know what what was thought to be the way uh, to treat somebody, and, yes. and what you know what you out of experience grew to realize was uh, you know, not really practical. Yes, and and what what like let's start with the first sort of set of jobs you had. You, where'd you go after after uh, Metropolitan? Uh, I went to prison. So how long you went to where? Like Rikers Island. So, so like a real the the prison, the yeah. New York prison. Yeah. Rikers was uh, I that was like a city prison. 
Yeah, it was a jail technically. Right, right. It wasn't like, you know, they sent you away for years. It was more of a holding situation, correct? Yeah, most of the guys there were waiting trial, which made it a very jumpy place. You know, they weren't happy. Yeah. You know, it's actually calmer upstate. Uh, you know, you have a few guys doing a, bi a one or two year bids who do it in Rikers, but mostly it's uh, people waiting their trial. And and what what is your function there? My function is to um, get played by the inmates to give them Valium and to refuse to give it to them. That was basically my <laughs> so, my function. Is the, you, so there you learned the uh, the incredible charm and uh, <laughs> intelligence of the dope fiend. You could say that, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a, yeah, uh, it was a crash course. Yeah, I don't know, Doc. I'm just you know I'm uh, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm in a <laughs> I'll tell you though, you know, there's a psychology to everything, even yeah. criminality. Like every guy that I interviewed, which was a lot of guys, I was there for five years. Said, five years? Yeah. Um, every one of them said, I am innocent of the crime of which I'm accused. Then they said, but by the way, I committed all these other crimes. I'm the best criminal you've ever seen. But this particular one I happen to be innocent of. <laughs> so there was a pride to it. Yes. Yeah, that was a criminal pride. You know, there's a pecking order sure. based on your crimes. All so yeah, so what were the what were, so outside of that, what were the primary lessons of, of being a prison shrink for five years? Um, the primary lesson, I would say, is it makes you, it brings out your instincts yeah. You know, you could say your animal instincts, but not in a bad way because in a prison setting you have to be able to size somebody up really quickly. Yeah. You have about 2 seconds and the way you carry yourself matters more than what you say. Uh-huh. Like the the cell blocks, um I'm not sure the numbers, but I think there was like 150 guys in his cell block. Yeah. You only had two correction officers. Right. Now, some of the correction officers couldn't handle their business and and the cell block would be chaotic, out of control. Other guys would dominate the 150, and you'd have decorum and, you know, probably some degree of fear of the... Uh, but they, they radiated authority. Right. And uh, I became interested in the difference between who can radiate authority and who can't, almost on an animal level. Uh-huh. And, and what, what did you come up with as being the differences? Um, the difference is, I would say, twofold. Number one, how you express yourself. Yeah. And the person who can express himself in a flow with confidence... Uh, gets a lot of authority that way, and the other thing is, um, the person, this correction officer's, um, how can you say it, awareness or sensitivity to the vibe of the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some guys. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking of one. Um, I this was the scariest thing that ever happened to me. I I was admitting a new patient to the psychiatric right uh it wasn't called a ward whatever that that um quad they called it and i'm 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 near writing and in the prison they call it yoking the guy out of nowhere he jumps up yokes me around the neck pulls me down and that was okay but then he went for my pen yeah and he was going to stick the pen in my eye thank god they interceded right at that moment so he didn't give a fuck. He was just going to kill you. No, he didn't care. Ugh. He was either he was either paranoid, schizophrenic, or doing a good imitation. Yeah. Of, this idea that you know uh, of confidence and authority. Yeah. Like you, you know what I've heard and, and what I, I know in my life is that on the other side of that, certainly with criminal minds, there's their instincts are to find a guy. They're gonna they're gonna size you up just as quickly as you are. Yeah. So or so, quicker. Yeah. yeah. So the game is that. So yeah, this exuding of authority or this taking of authority, 
I mean, it's it's got to come from a pretty real place, so they're gonna they're gonna see right through it. Yes, it's got to come from a real place. One of the things we do, we tried to develop, and I think succeeded with the tools, is the tools are not just cognitive; they're not just concepts or ideas. They try to drive emotion and energy right through your body, so they change your entire state. Yeah. And the conceit is that they can do it quickly, and if you if you practice them, they can. Like how much, you know, as a guy that's been doing this for what forty years, yeah. fifty years. So, what things can you tell? Like, I'm always curious with with uh, with psychiatrists is that you know what 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 illnesses of the mind can you sort of call? Can you see almost immediately within five minutes? Um, probably a lot of them. You certainly. Um, you know, the classic thing for a psychiatrist is is treating what's called a borderline. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, that's the trickiest one. That's the trickiest one. A borderline will idealize you at the beginning and tell you you're the greatest thing since doo-doo. Yeah. And then you will disillusion them. It's just a matter of time. It could take two days or two weeks. And then you're the worst therapist that ever lived and you fail to understand them, fail to heal them, etc. Um, you know they're they're very very unstable and what they you know the the um, folk wisdom about it is an experienced clinician can diagnose them before their ass actually hits the seat. Really? Yeah, um, because what they do what they do is they want to idealize you and make you seem superhuman and they get this look in their eye. It's hard to describe exactly <laughs> what the look is, but there's something unreal about it. Uh-huh. And the younger therapists tend to get sucked in by it because, oh, here's this person really looking up to me. And they always compare you to the prior therapist uh-huh. who's a complete shit, yeah, loser, right. you sure. know, worthless. Yeah. <laughs> and you're the one who's going to save them. Um, when you get older and more experienced, when you see that look, you know, you want to run for the hills. Why, right, because they're untreatable? <laughs> they're not untreatable. Um, there's... It's just the old methods of treating them were basically worthless. Here's what happened to me. Maybe it'll help answer the yeah. question. When I I was probably 26, 27, I, fir- I was first given my own patient. They weren't private patients because I was still a resident, but I was given my own patients to treat. And right away, I, I felt something was wrong. And the reason I say that is that patients were in urgent need of relief whether you know whether it's someone who's depressed yeah high anxiety insomnia you know you can have your OCD I mean there's a million endless um, you know crushing depression they needed something right at the moment that they presented not that was going to cure them but that gave them the sense you understood what they were feeling you were on their team and you wanted them to get some relief quick yeah why because if they get some relief quick there's a sense of hope. Uh-huh. If you just sit there and talk to them about their background and their parents and whatever, you know, it's like a boat lying dead in the water. You know, there's no particular hope of, of uh, progress. It could go the other way. It could go the other way, and a lot of times it does, actually. Yeah. So, all right, so now before we get into the tools specifically, because, you know, I want to apply them to my life as we sit here. Okay. <laughs> we'll do it, I promise. All right. Uh, you, you know, I, I, well, I'm in therapy now when I haven't been in a long time. Mm-hmm. And I've been through uh, enough therapy, and, and somehow or another, like I do believe, and maybe, maybe, maybe you disagree with me that you know that age is a great uh, leveler. It is oh, uh, yeah. of problems that you know, like you know, all the things that you thought were life or death, 
you know, it, it, sometimes you look back at them and, and you're like, oh my God, that was fucking ridiculous. Right. And and back then, I you know, I was, you know, I was the end of my rope. Uh, but I, I guess that's, but you know, if you live through it and you don't, you don't hurt yourself or, or get worse, you know, you, you have that, that hindsight. Yeah. You know, how do you know, like, cause with something like this, where you write a book and you say like, this is, you know, this is the get well system psychologically. I mean, it's not right. a, a, there's not an unusual book for people to write, but you know, few of them really have the teeth to, to really make a difference. Right. 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 Like the self-help thing. Right. You know, it was a little, a uh, little iffy. Yeah. That's putting it mildly, but Yeah. <laughs> So, like in in terms of your psychiatric practice, I mean, I have to assume that you still you know prescribe medicine. I do, and you know you, that that some things are not necessarily easily resolved with the tools. No, in fact, we we made it a point to tell the truth in the book. You know, yeah. maybe it hurt the sales. I don't know. <laughs> but what we said is the tools work, but it's really hard. It's going to take a while. You'll you'll see results right away, but you won't see a cure right away. You may never see a cure it's a fight it's a it's a lifestyle or it's a set of habits you know we call it mental hygiene um and you will have to do it for the rest of your life we use the term ceaseless immersion Mm -hmm. so you see i'll tell you what it is when i first moved out here um it was 82 and it was really smoggy out here in 82 and i see all the californians in in the morning going to work yeah and the smog didn't bother them, and I would curse them out of the fucking Californians. Were they crazy? You <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Within six months, I never noticed the smog myself. Right. I was ceaselessly immersed in smog. I just accepted it. <laughs> it's you know? adapting. It's adapting, yeah. Yeah. You, you don't have the energy to, to rant against the smog every day. Exactly. Traffic's another thing. Yeah, don't, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> you can't surrender to ceaseless immersion in traffic. That is aggravating always. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's that, outside the bounds of psychiatry. But right, but it's also an amazing test of uh, you know, I, you know, I'm in recovery, so I'm a recovery guy. Uh-huh. So like, you know, I I've got those tools, you know, right. sometimes. Uh, so like, when I go through your book, I mean, I understand certain things, you know, in different languages. That you know, yes. a lot of a lot of this stuff, sort of like how to 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 live a, a responsible and mentally healthy life. Uh, these are, you know, there's a standard to it. Yes, 100%. You know, but with, with traffic, like, I try to do that on a good day. You know, you can sit there and you can say, like, I got no control over this. Right. And 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 just, you know, realize that any aggravation that you're going to put yourself through in relation to that is fucking wasted energy. There you go. Right. right. But but still, some days, you know, it, it also is useful in that you could have other things bothering you. you there could be other things sitting in your soul. And if you're going to you know, you know blow up at the guy in front of you or the traffic or whatever, maybe it's not a bad way to blow off Will's steam. Uh, I don't know if I fully agree with that. <laughs> I'm very euphemistic. Here's a, here's a, well, first of all, I'll tell you the, the tool, the grateful flow in the yeah. book, the fourth tool in the book. You should try it when you're sitting in traffic. It's very soothing. So basically, all you do for 30 seconds is name things you are grateful for, and you want to stick with small ones better than big ones. Sure. Like, uh, you know, I'm grateful it was a sunny day today. I'm grateful right. my car has gas in it. I'm the gratitude list. Yeah. You say them nice and slow. And you try to feel your chest relaxing, almost melting as mm-hmm. you say them. And then for a second, you stop saying them. You just feel the flow of gratefulness yeah. without the words. Yeah. And um, if you're lucky, if you're attentive, you'll, you'll feel yourself approached by an energy. And it doesn't matter what you call it. That's very soothing and calming. It's the energy that says, 
It's a good universe. Things are okay. You're okay. Yeah, you kind of open your heart. Yes. You know, if you're a, like an angry guy like me, or a, a anxious uh, sort of worrying guy, you know that the the feeling of actually opening your heart is a little daunting. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit scary. It is. It, it, you 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 literally feel like the vulnerability is a lot to deal with. Yes. Now, what we try to do with our patients is prepare them in advance. So. <laughs> what, you might cry? <laughs> what, what is it? Well, just to stick with this particular uh, scenario, you know, we've had a lot of guys that scream in traffic, go crazy, they flip other people off. We, I've even had a couple guys who follow people off the freeway. Yeah. And then one guy followed somebody off the freeway. He got out of his car. He said, let's go. And the guy took a bat out, you know. And that, that was it. That was it. That he lost that war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but here's the thing. Yeah. Um, there's a principle called unification. Unification says everything is connected. So if you work on your impulses to scream, threaten, um, go nuts, whatever you work, yeah. if you work on those impulses, we can talk a little more how to do it, that will carry over into other areas where your impulses are out of control. It may be ang anger, but it may be a different impulse. Mm -hmm. It may be the impulse to overeat. Just as a, as a for instance, yeah, it may be the impulse, obviously, to drink. Right. Um, what, what, so what, but you know, in tracking those impulses, you yeah. know, in the old school way, yeah. like uh, you know, dealing with you know, I'm a comedian, whatever. But like you know, I, I got a lot of anger issues, and I had substance abuse issues, and I have food issues. So like you know, from your experience, what is the source? You know, ninety percent of the time, of 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 anger or compulsive behavior or or not being able to uh, to stop that stuff. The the addict the addict personality and the truth is in our society which is it's almost everybody sure it's it's designed that way capitalism needs it uh, yeah you know I, we I think in the first book we had the thing about consumerism right you can never feel whole yeah it, it's a, like There's always every, something else to, sure every the, every force of business you know through advertising and manipulation and salesmanship is designed to make you feel incomplete yes that's a hundred percent right um, and you know we try to tell the truth about that in the book which means the whole world's against you in this sense the whole world is a challenge the whole world pulls you away from yourself Now you can know that intellectually but what the tools do is they they give you an active way to say no to that transcend it Tran thank you transcend right yeah do you, did you ever read Ernest Becker <clears throat> the denial yes. of death yes that book changed my life. Yeah. In that, you know, like, because what you're talking about when you talk about the God-sized hole or the void or the black sun, you know, in in a, in a selfish culture or just as uh, us being selfish animals with the ability to think that there, the, I, I think what he sort of posits is that there's a, an almost primal need to feel connected to something bigger than you. Yes. Right? And, and that, you know, you know where you're not going to get around that. That you know the the existential loneliness of not being able to engage that is too horrifying and terrifying and uh, depressing and and co could cause you a lot of problems. So once you accept that, and even if you do it involuntarily with you know football or a rock band or drugs or whatever the fuck you're trying to do, that you're gonna have to you're gonna have to reckon with that need. I just want to stop this interview right now and say something, which is I am so fucking impressed that you not only read that book but that you understood it. Because that's one of the books I assign my patients. And basically what he's saying in the book is that you could reduce all human problems to the same issue, which is the denial of death. And mm -hmm. I find that very helpful. It's funny, you know, we're, just, we're dealing with that in the new book also because one of the things um, 
the therapy attempts to do in, in terms of dealing with fear or transcending fear is to give you the sense that death is not permanent. And most of uh, most of us, like for me being in public or doing this kind of thing, yeah. scares the shit out of me. It's like a certain kind of a death. But the only thing that's going to die is my ego. Mm-hmm. So if you can <clears throat> accept and rush into death and process it properly, you've lost nothing except your ego. And you get, um, in return, um, a better connection, I guess, with something much bigger. Well, in, okay, so that well, that's a pretty big thing to, to to wrap your brain around, you know, because I well, recently I had some sort of weird terror, you know, in the morning, you know, where mm-hmm. you know I decided that you you know that that I had cancer, you know, mm-hmm. there was it happens some days. And, you know, and it, and it could happen to anybody. It happens to most people. But it, it and I was not experiencing anything mm-hmm. really. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this particular morning, I was able to really experience the, the mm-hmm. terror of it. You know, for about ten minutes. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, my brain was manufacturing that. You know, it sort of wrote out its own. You mm-hmm. know, uh, whatever. But you know, that fear. Uh, in you know, it, I, I would imagine it's it's more damaging and 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 uh, problematic than actually being told you have cancer, because you know that that's conclusive, and right. then you you act practically. But when your brain just goes and it says like you know I'm dying in any given moment because that's the way your brain works, mm-hmm. I imagine that that fear is is the fear exactly what you're talking about. That that level of terror mm-hmm. that became manifest that morning for ten minutes is probably in us all the time. It's in us all the time, yeah. And it's 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 profound and 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 horrifying. Yes. And everything that our ego does is to sort of like keep that fucker down. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. He may so, come up in a dream as some guy right. chasing you. The night. But when you say that death is not an end, other than the ego, I mean, what you're suggesting you know not not necessarily God, because I know you're careful in the book not to do that, but but to to some universal order. Yes, and some- and that you know even when we're gone or when we decompose, because you know you have atheists that uh, or, or non-believers or myself that you know you want to believe on some level. Some people find comfort in just a sort of like, yeah, you, you're done, you're done. Right. But I, but I think there's a denial to that. I, I don't know that anybody can, you know, you know glibly accept that. Yeah, I think that is, in itself is a, a defense mechanism. Is it part of the denial of death? Yes. So what, what, what do you? How do you explain uh, then what happens after death? Um, couldn't you ask me an easier question? Yeah, I could. <laughs> I could. Well, well, I mean, it's just that when you say that it doesn't end there, you know, I, I, I know it's a, it's, it's an intellectual tool, but, but what are you thinking? Um, well, I think there's two parts of that answer. Let me give you the easy one first, and then yeah. I'll talk about myself. Um, no, it's all right. I'll talk about myself. First. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I've been sick for a long time. Um, before the Parkinson's, I had some kind of chronic fatigue uh-huh. thing. And um, it, part of part of being sick was getting all the information. Mostly it would come at night uh-huh. that... I mean, this what we wrote in this book is only like ten, five, ten percent of the um, information that we right. have. Um, so it was almost as if, it felt almost as if the illness was a, like a kind of walking death. Uh-huh. I remember because I used to, I was a city kid and I used to go out all the time. I would go out four or five nights a week, and I remember when I first got sick and I was on Second Avenue and Eighty Seventh Street, just like hanging on this 
parking meter. I was too tired to do anything. It was a Friday night, and I said, shit, my life has changed. And in effect, what happened was the old part of me that was wild and a player and mm -hmm. all that stuff was actually killed. Um, and it was right at that point that all this information began to come to me. Now, more stuff happened after about... Um, I've never spoken about this in public before, but after about five or six years, I started to see these... Um, how to describe... You know like when you go to the movies and there's something glinting off the screen? Mm -hmm. You see this just for a moment. You see like a flash of light. Yeah. I started to see these flashes of light, but I would only see them when I was doing sessions. Mm -hmm. And I would see them around my patient's head. And a lot of times when they would say something that had strong emotion, I would see the little flash mm -hmm. there. Now, it was... And it, it wasn't just on a good day or once in a while or with certain patients. It was it was happening all the time, hmm. all the time, all the time. Now, I'm not saying that proves the existence of God, but it's, there are definitely things going on that we don't know about. And I study this guy, Rudolf Steiner, who died in 1925. Mm -hmm. And um, he has he's made a lot of predictions, not, and not predictions like... Uh, the world's going to be destroyed tomorrow or, you know, something that'll make a tentpole movie. They're, they're, yeah. they're modest uh, predictions, and most of which have, have come true. One of the things he said was that he said at the end of the 20th century, it's going to be impossible to educate anybody, and it's going to be impossible to... The leaders are going to be weak. Mm -hmm. And he said the reason for that is that there's going to be a drive of individuality that's going to get out of control, which clearly has happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and he said, there's no going back on that. You have to take that drive for individuality and make it a good thing because obviously it could easily just get caught up in consumerism, mm -hmm. greed, mm -hmm. you know, uh, tribal warfare. And, and, and tribal warfare, but also on, on a more intimate level, uh, you know, pathological self-centeredness. Yes. That uh, people's inability to connect with others and and it, you know because of their own maybe even nebulous personal needs that it just seems that e even the act of therapy you know what i've learned from from talking to people is that it seems to be have become an inconvenience to shoulder even mild uh, uh emotional expectations of other people yeah listen to what rudolf steiner says about this it's so yeah. amazing he says when a, a mother has a young infant mm -hmm. The inf it's actually a narcissistic act. The, in the infant is part of her. So loving the infant and loving herself are all of a piece. And he mm -hmm. says that's necessary to get the extraordinary degree of sensitivity and identification, right? Right. Here's what he says. He says, you can't get rid of that. You actually have to make that force bigger. And you say, well, what the fuck? Does he make that kind of narcissism bigger? Yeah, he says, because... What you have to do is make the field bigger so that it encompasses not just our child, but every single person in the world. Now, that, you know, that's a big task, obviously. Right. We have to take on, we have to be narcissistically involved in the whole world. But you know, but also, like, you know, I was told, uh, this was another profound thing that I, a moment that I had with a, a psychotherapist, another tidbit about my personal sense, mm -hmm. and it, it speaks to what you're speaking about, which is that, you know, there is a, what you're talking about, I think, is called also primal union, that, that you know, the connectivity between the mother and child is symbiotic and yes. necessary for a certain amount of time. Yes. But in order for an individual to grow, at some point, the mother has to distance themselves from that and, and let that kid struggle on his own. Yes. 
So I'm not saying it's contradictory, but I mean, it seems that, you know, what you're talking about is a, a human principle of us being able to open our hearts and, and not be selfish to the point where we, you know, negate others and, and negate, you know, the world, but also to, to develop as a person, your mother's got to cut you loose and let yeah, you Yeah, think about head. this. Hmm. The, her cutting you loose yeah. has to be a narcissistic act for her. In other words, I'm bound or tied to this person for life or yeah. for longer. The person needs to be free of me. Mm -hmm. I sacrifice myself because it's part of my project. Mm -hmm. There's an interesting tool with that, you know, just as far as expressing yourself towards other people, where um, you, you either um, are angry, polemic, overbearing, or, mm -hmm. which is one possibility, we'll say that's category one. Yeah. Or category two, where you're passive, uh, withdrawn, uninvolved, mm -hmm. right? But you're very, you're accepting and loving of the other person. Now, there's something good in each of those, but by themselves, just a tirade or rage or whatever is not so good. Mm -hmm. And uh, the opposite, just being blindly loving and accepting and passive is not so good. Mm -hmm. So what we try to do is combine the two. Now, the way that you, you want to try this? Yeah. Okay, just close your eyes for a second. Just go to the rage part of you. Yeah. <laughs> that was quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, I have a river of that running at all times. Yeah. yeah. This foam coming down his mouth, <laughs> for those of you who can't see it. <laughs> yeah. All right, now just kill that. Now go to the other extreme, complete, passive acceptance and lovingness. Yeah. Good. Now go back to the first one. Yeah. Now go back to the second one. Right. Now, don't think. Hit them both at the same time. <laughs> Not bad. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, but what did I just achieve? What did you just achieve? Yeah. You achieved the impossible. <laughs> In other words, flow. <laughs> flow is the combination of two opposites that don't naturally fit in the same space. Um, and logically, you can't. You can't, you know, that was the excluded middle in Aristotle. You can't squeeze them both together. But if you change, if you alter your consciousness and you you go into a flow state, then you can um, you can have the good parts of both of them simultaneously. Anything artistic, particularly anything that's original, has qualities of this. Well, it, it, it seems to me that what, what you're saying is that. You know, if you if you do the work, that you know, you'll realize that both of those things are simultaneously happening all the yes, time, there you go. and that you know that you're going to make either uh, deliberate choices or instinctual choices in a moment of what you're going to honor. Yes, that's correct. All right, I get that. So this is basically I want to go to the book a bit and, and go through these things so people can can you know the the people that are that are searching and need help, uh, like most people, if they'll admit it. Uh, can can sort of get a wrap a handle on on each tool, but this this is considered you would consider it cognitive therapy. Uh, I would consider it cognitive plus cognitive <laughs> cognitive two point <laughs> All right, so we enter this book uh, with the uh, the first tool. Well, it, it is the the reversal of desire. Yeah. Okay. So now. So uh, uh, the practical way to approach that would be like, you know, I, I come into your office and I say, you know, everyone's a fucking asshole. You know, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of this bullshit. They can all go fuck themselves. I can't get anything done because I'm being stopped at every turn by these assholes. Mm -hmm. How do I apply that tool? Uh, 
you'd have to buy the second book. <laughs> 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 so, so my it's problem. A better <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say just for argument's sake that that person who's complaining and feeling like a victim really yeah. has something that he would like to do, and he's afraid to do it. Okay. Let's say he's a screenwriter who wants to write a novel. You know, yeah. Simple, common thing. Right. And he's he's he he's, feels like a victim because he's blaming his stasis, his inability to move forward on the outside mm -hmm. world. Okay. So. What I politely tell him is, you know, just say clinically, why don't you shut the fuck up? <laughs> you baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, then we, we say, we're going to be honest with yourself. There's something you want to do that's meaningful to you. You're avoiding it. Why are you avoiding it? Because there's some kind of pain. And it doesn't particularly matter. Fear itself is a kind of pain. Yeah. But there's vulnerability is, is a kind of pain. Hurt feelings is a kind of It doesn't matter. The point is, the reversal of desire says, well, let me, let me back up. Here's the secret of pain. If you go towards it, pain shrinks. If you avoid it and move away from it, it follows you like a monster. Mm -hmm. Okay? So pain is, is itself in motion. It's mutable. It's plastic. Okay? Mm -hmm. So the reversal of desire says, instead of desiring to avoid pain, yeah. I desire the pain. That's why it's called the reversal of desire. Right. Why do I desire the pain? Because only by desiring it can I go into it and shrink it. I get okay? it. The, the, the only issue that, like, that I find intellectually with that is that you know, m many people who go towards pain, the, that you're, the, 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 the hinge to, to what you're saying is that that person needs to identify that fear or that sadness. Yes. Uh, and, and and then you know, move against it. Yes. But I think moving towards pain. I think a lot of people, and I think you talk about it a little a little bit in the book uh, with the maze thing and and with the cyclical thing is that whatever you know cyclical kind of behavior that's keeping somebody stuck, there's comfort in that. Yes. Yeah, so the reversal of desire and the drive for forward motion is not the same as masochism. You know, it's right. It's not the same as like you know I'm fucked and and that's my that's my point of view. Right, right, right. That, that there, there's something pathologically wrong with thinking that I'm fucked is your point of view. So why are you fucked? What are you afraid of? Now let's move towards that. Yeah, exactly. It's it's cheating to say I'm fucked. I'm a victim. What you're really saying is I'm still special, but I'm special because I'm getting fucked so badly. Exactly. Right. Whereas the program says you know you're the piece of shit that the world revolves right, around. Right. 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 So you still want your specialness. Moving forward, you have to give up your specialness. Subject yourself to whatever is going to happen and move through it. At the risk of, of, of not being special. At the risk of not being special. I call it, and I don't know if I invented this, but I actually, you know, I have a, uh, a, an amateur psychology practice here. And I call no that. No shit. Yeah. <laughs> I call it inverted narcissism. I like that. That, that narcissism, you know, blind narcissism is, you know, I, I'm special. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I'm amazing. But inverted narcissism is I'm a fucking asshole. But that's what makes me what makes me special. Yeah, <laughs> Barry, inverted narcissism. <laughs> Write that down when you listen to this. All right, let's let's go on to okay, active love. Okay. Now, all right, so you move into the pain. Yeah. And now the, this the premise of this is 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 something difficult, especially for selfish people uh, to 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 have to, to actually choose. To open your heart. Yes. Somebody does something fucked up to you. Yeah. They take your parking space. Right. They take your girlfriend. Yeah. They take your job on a TV show. Right. Whatever. Yeah. 
right? It's not fair. Right. You go into the maze. I, I want revenge. I'm going to speak out to them. I'm going to tell them this and that. How could they have done it? It's the most fucked up thing ever. It doesn't matter what your thoughts are. Right. They're amazed because once they get started, you're caught in the maze of those thoughts and you can't get out of them. Okay? Uh, I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> you are waiting for the universe to become fair. Now, in Hamlet, the ghost says to Hamlet, uh, you must set the balance straight. Uh-huh. And it didn't turn out too good. Yeah. Everybody died. <laughs> <laughs> the, right. Right? So right. the trick, and meanwhile, while you're caught in the maze, the person you hate the most is actually taken up shop inside your brain yeah. to actually live in there. So, sure. So you have to live with them. It's bad enough they did something to you last week. It's as if they're doing it to you every five minutes now. Right. So y- you want to remove them. You know, right. It's like a form of psychic surgery. Now, and so that you can go ahead with your life instead of getting caught. Now, the only way to do that is to accept them and accept what happens, happened. And the force that accepts what is, is love. It's not a romantic view of love. It's the source that accepts what is, is love. When you can generate it in the face of all this hatred, you become unstoppable. In other words, it's, it's kind of like completing a circuit. And once you can love again, um, or let me put it this way, if you can love the person that you hate the most in the world at that moment, you can love anything and anyone. At that point, your heart's open, you're free. And it's not, I always tell people, this is not a moral thing. It's not even about forgiveness. Like if Adolf Hitler had a car and he drove past my house and he said, uh, you know, uh, you're a Jew, you know, wash yeah, my yeah. car. Yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> I, could, I could do it. All I need is a hose. It wouldn't matter what my opinion was of Adolf Hitler. Right. It wouldn't matter that he killed half my family. It wouldn't matter. If I put the holes on his car, the car would be clean. Yeah. So if you think of love as a substance, yeah. just like the water in that hose, you can, sh- you can um, project it anywhere you want to. It's your freedom to be able to do sure. that. Right, but, but what you have to transcend there is uh, you, you, you know, the feeling of being a heel or, or you know, I, I would assume that applying this tool you know, sometimes has to, uh, you know, it's just an exercise until time you know, softens the injury. Um, it might be. However, if it frees you to move forward with your own life, sure, you're going to get over the injury a lot faster. The did, other thing... Did you really have family in the Holocaust? Yeah, mm. I did. You? I don't think so. They mm. got out before, and they came here before it all went down. Uh, yeah, the, my father had, I think, four or five sisters that didn't get out. Oh, God. And you grew up with that, too. Yeah, oh, forget about it the realization that that type of evil you know i mean you know as a as a third you know like i'm three generations down and my family was not affected but you know we certainly learned about it but i have to imagine not unlike uh, i think i believe victor frankel you know that the you know the the that being that intimate that like you know you had ants mm-hmm. and just knowing that that kind of horrible monstrosity could happen that must have had some impact it had a lot of impact, you know. It made me very interested in evil, you know. And I, I, when I was really young, I rejected a psychological explanation of it because, you know, in the PC far left wing, um, because the, 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 there was a suggestion that if you understood the person, treated them well, um, explained to them what was going on, that somehow that would mitigate the evil. 
that can mitigate a psychological problem, but not evil. Evil is dynamic and expansive. So it's going to move against you no matter what. It doesn't care. As a matter of fact, it, it likes two things. One, you're not admitting that it exists. Mm. And number two, your belief that you could talk uh, mm-hmm. evil out of being evil. Being that that's a, you know, part, a component of the, the human experience and, and, and you're saying it's a, it's a given. Mm-hmm. That uh, you know, do you find that you know a, a tool like active love? Do you, I mean, are you of the belief that that love can transcend that? I'm of the belief it could transcend it for the individual. Right. I'm not of the belief it's going to make evil go, go away. away. <laughs> and, <laughs> so, you know, so, so, so the, the the battle continues. The battle continues. That's why we have ceaseless immersion. <laughs> you are ceaselessly ceaselessly immersed in evil. Yeah. Look at you. You're in show business. <laughs> I mean, barely. I'm in my garage. <laughs> you know, I haven't reached the upper echelons to where I, you know I'm meeting with evil on a daily basis. You will soon because all the comics are talking about you. Uh, we'll see. They come talk to me. So, okay, inner authority. Yeah, that's the next tool. Right now, now we've got active love, right. which is basically uh, you know choose love in the face of contempt as opposed to be stuck in the maze of hate and resentment and uh, vengeance and the other uh, seven deadly sins. Well so, said. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so okay, when, once you sort of get a handle on you know trying to get out of the maze, you know what what is inner inner authority? How does that work in sequence? Well, there's two kinds of authority. There's the typical kind of authority, which has to do with hierarchy, like maybe you're the president of a corporation sure. or something, or you're the leader of your particular uh, division, and it also is based on intimidation, raw power. There's not much communication. Um, so that's one kind of power, and there's a place for it, but I think less and less and less. The other kind of power is called authority by flow. Mm-hmm. So that has to do with how well you express yourself. It has to do with the amount of courage you carry yourself with. It has to do with the amount of creative problem solving you can do, etc. Mm-hmm. But it comes out in a flow. People can feel it. Right. They feel its absence. Right. The second kind of leadership is inspiring. Mm-hmm. So the first kind gets people to do their jobs because mm-hmm. they're scared, but they're not really going to go very far beyond. It's management. It's management, mm-hmm. right? This is inspiration. Mm-hmm. Now, um, so the question is, how do you get in a flow state? Mm-hmm. Um, and that has to do with your shadow. The human shadow thing. I mean, when I read the description in the book, uh, you know, I thought it was as good a description as I had heard uh, about the the manifestation of of your worst self, of your insecurities yes. that lives within us all the time. Yes, that's correct. Jung, who's a great um, psychiatrist working at Zurich, um, defined the shadow as that which you wish you were not, mm-hmm. but you are. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a great. <laughs> you better make friends with that guy. Yeah, and most <laughs> most people don't. Now, here's what happens when you're in front of any kind of an audience, and it doesn't have to be an audience where you're performing. It yeah. could be job presentation. It could be your spouse trying to, you know, convince her or something. Whatever. You're afraid that the other person is going to see your shadow. Mm-hmm. See your their reaction to you has become too important. Usually because you need their approval. Mm-hmm. Now. And here's how I learned this. I used to treat a lot of actors uh, years ago, and uh, every actor has the same basic problem with auditions. Mm -hmm. Now, 
let's say an actor goes in, let's say it's for TV, his first reading is good, he gets a callback, mm-hmm. right? Now what he's thinking is, on the callback, I have to replicate my original reading. Obviously it was good or I wouldn't have gotten the callback. Right. So there's a certain kind of perfectionism and control in that. Mm-hmm. So what does the guy do? He takes his shadow. Let's say his shadow was you never graduated from high school. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. Should have been a doctor. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. You're this depraved actor, right? Yeah. He says to the shadow, listen, I'm going to go in and do this audition. It's just going to take about five minutes. I don't want them to see you. No offense. Yeah. Just wait out here. I'll yeah. be back in five minutes. And the shadow says... Oh, yeah? yeah? You think you can do this without me? <laughs> Fuck you. Go ahead. Let's see how you do. And what happens is... He becomes a shadow puppet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's good. Shadow puppet. That, that could be a book title. Yeah. Anyway, so the actor comes in without his shadow, and yeah. the shadow is juicy. Mm-hmm. It's in flow. It's mm-hmm. instinctual. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. It has depth. So without all of that, what you usually get is a flat reading. You know, the actor's a little bit removed, and... Mm-hmm. Maybe the guy in the back was up all night blowing or something, yeah. so he's, he feels injured by that. And the guy doesn't get the job. Anyway, so that happened so many times, so I said, listen, we're going to reverse this. Yeah. We're going to take the shadow yeah. by the scruff of the neck and bring him with us into the room. As a matter of fact, we're going to let him do the audition. And as a matter of fact, we don't even give a fuck if we get the job. <laughs> all we want to do is remember to bring him into the room. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I can't name names. Well, Hank told, told this story. He did? Mm-hmm. Fuck. No, it's good. Oh, okay. No, it's good. It was something that helped him. He cited this, this particular tool. He He's a fantastic student. You know, some people come along, they really do the work. And, yeah. You know, it's paid. I mean, obviously, he's talented. Yeah. Well, I attribute all of that to myself as no, I, well. I would take full credit. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I think what's interesting about what we're doing and about the mind in general is that, you know, there's a movement against psychology you know, that calls it, you know, uh, a racket, a bunch of whiners, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, that a lot of psychology uh, just uh, creates a relationship that, that never heals anybody. Right. But it, uh, And then there's, the, you know, the medical lobby, you know, the pharmaceutical lobby that, that puts way too much emphasis right. on that. But I think what you understand and what, you know, what is, uh, you know, something that, you know, non-believers or, or skeptics or, or, or people that uh, are, are, are only believe in tough love is that there, there's a poetry that needs to be applied to these things that are, aren't explainable yet live in the human heart and soul yeah. a, and are unavoidable. Yes. That, you know, you, that, you know, if you get into a sort of tough love thing and you, you, you just you find yourself in, in, in a, a practical denial that leads to uh, discontent. Yes. But but in order to, to practical re- denial that leads to discontent, get that Barry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but I think what what, what you're embracing, and I, I think what is true for any system, because I mean the the issues you're talking about are, are human issues that that have been around for 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 a long time, yes. for for as long as people have tried to function in civilization. Yes. And some of the the other issues, you know, around uh, you know belief in higher forces, you know that that predates civilization. But they, what I'm saying is, these are fundamental parts of the human mind yes. and, and heart. So what what I, I like about what you're doing here is that you're trying to make them understandable in in a in, in a non sort of uh, dogmatic way, yes. and you're trying to you know, to make these things practical. Yet you're also engaging, you know, the the bigger picture. Yes, and and you know it's it's a it's a hell of a it's a hell of a task. It's a hell of a thank you though. 
At least you understand what we were failing at. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I think that people forget what the importance of poetry, and 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 even you know, and I say that in a, in a broad sense that you know, even you know, whether or not you, you know you believe the Bible is true or not, or whether or not you're gonna you know sort of partake in any sort of spiritual quest. Mm-hmm. That all, all any of these kind of books, you know, not so much philosophy, but some of it is trying to do is giving you a, a personal poetic that will enable you to at least uh, engage in these fundamental human struggles. Yes, that's excellent. You know, my partner, Barry Michaels, is a fantastic partner, by the way. He's um, focused on, almost obsessed with the powers of the human heart. Mm-hmm. And um, he's won me over, no question, the... the uh, the heart has ultimately has more power than the head. I don't mean that in a trite, cheap way. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, there are actual facilities, abilities, powers, forces that can come from the heart. Mm-hmm. The po the poetry is how you, and including the, a lot of the symbolism, that's how you reach the heart. You mm-hmm. can't really reach it with concept, you mm-hmm. know, w- with um, just abstract concepts. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the tools are designed to do that and again for us it doesn't really matter whether you say these forces are as real as electromagnetic forces or they're just a construct that doesn't matter what matters is what kind of connection do you make with Mm -hmm. the concepts Mm -hmm. right how do you how do you make it your own yes yeah so let's just deal a little bit with the last tool in in terms of of uh, higher forces okay because this is there's a lot of uh of talk in here about about something bigger, yeah. so higher forces. You're going to tap into these higher forces. I think you have some explanation that in our conversation about the flow and about the existence of a universal order, and that you know that that faith is not necessarily God specific, but it's okay to have. And I'm a big believer in in faith without God. Yes, yeah. uh, and and not labeling God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but it's a hard jump for some people to make. Yeah, uh, it, but but it's undeniable. So so, how do you approach that in the book? Into getting people to a place in acknowledging higher forces, which is a sticky point for for overly uh, controlling logical people. Yeah, how, how do you do that? Uh, we encourage them almost to take a scientific view, and that means don't believe a word we're saying. Hmm. Study what we say because it's directive. It will tell you how to use the tool, when to use it, what the rationale is for using it. But don't believe us that it's going to work, and certainly don't believe us that it's going to create higher forces. See what happens. The single standard that's most helpful in that regard is when you're working with somebody and they do something that they were not able to do before. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether they know why or how they can do it or not. That's not what the key. The key is it's a possibility now that's become real and all all they need is uncertainty and it's, it's like i don't know where it comes from and that's fine i can live in the uncertainty of it and that's a that's for one issue or one problem then if we can get them to live like that and ceaseless immersion says you're going to have plenty of problems don't mm-hmm. worry you're going to get a chance to test this over and over and over again you again the the uh, judge is no longer the head it becomes the heart and um it's amazing how pe- people change um and unless they're interested in it i stay away from the doctrinaire spiritual concepts altogether mm-hmm. but if you if you drew a triangle mm-hmm. and you put a circle inside the triangle um i mean outside the triangle 
the tri- a triangle inside a circle means flow because the, the triangle is a sign for fire mm-hmm. or change. It means there's flow or potential flow inside you. So the top of the triangle is called possibility, mm-hmm. which means it's, imp- it's possible to function on a much higher level than you're functioning now. Now, the lower left corner is called determination. It means if it's possible to function on this higher level, mm-hmm. we're determined to get there. But the key is the lower right uh, corner, which is called the positive view of evil. Mm-hmm. And what that says is when you hit evil with a small e, let's mm-hmm. say somebody else treats you, mm-hmm. like, acts like an asshole or whatever, that makes you more determined, you go back to the other angle, to reach this possibility state. So ceaseless immersion says you're going to keep meeting evil, and you're going to, by using the tools, turn the evil into um, what you're capable of, or the maximize what you're capable of. And I believe that's what most people want out of therapy anyway. Uh, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of people that are performers in the arts that, that are writers. They all want it, obviously. And whether they're atheists or devout believers, they all sense in themselves there's something more, and they want to get to it. Now, with, with this book, I mean, I, I guess I should ask the question, you, you know, just because, you know, you, you clearly are a practitioner and, and, you know, your Hippocratic Oath seems to be in the right place. You want to help people. You know, you're a, a healer. Yeah. You're a guy that wants to, you know, help people uh, live better lives. But I think when people see a book like this, they, they think like, well, this is a, they, this, these guys want to start a movement. Yeah. And, and you know, what, what is, you know, how do you counter that? Um. I'm so bad at starting a movement that once you get to know me, you'll see how ridiculous that is. Have you had um, that before? Have have people asked you that? Um, yeah, we have um, what I consider the greatest editor um, in the publishing industry. Who, Julie? Yeah, Julie Grau. Yeah. We have the same? Well, she didn't do my book, but I, uh, my book was on her, her imprint. And um, the reason I say she's the greatest is not just because of her technical skills, beauty, um, connections, all that. It's that she actually believes in this stuff and she's willing to put herself on the line for it. So what she basically said is, especially this kind of a book, we're going to, not a movement, but we're going to have to start a community Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to have to use all the viral means at our disposal Mm -hmm. uh, to get it out because um, unless we were to get very, very lucky and, you know, like we were on Dr. Oz and that, the book shot up. It yeah. was really nice to us, but that stuff tends not to last, and it's it's not um, indigenous to either of our personalities. Mm-hmm. So my personality is to just try to do something meaningful, start on a small scale, and just let it grow and grow and grow. One thing I do believe about this book, which is in three years or in six years, somebody's going to have a problem, and they're going to pick up the book for a solution to the problem right there. And and it will be able to help them at least to a degree. That's well, that's yeah, a real goal. No, that's that's great. That, that that like you know even the fact that you know we had a conversation about Ernest Becker, or Victor Frankel. I mean you know these like these struggles you know in your field and and in the and just in the the world of people, they're just ongoing. Yes. And the ideas are you know uh, as as each person takes a stab at it for better or for worse, you know some will fall away, and others you know will will stick. And, and help people wrap their brain around these issues in each you know generation or each era. Yes. Yeah. So let me, before we close here, when you were diagnosed with Parkinson's, um, you know, how did that change you? I mean, I know with, with the chronic fatigue syndrome, you, you started to sort of have a sense of, 
of of halos and 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 a read, uh, you know, in, in a visceral visual sense uh, of people's emotion. Uh, but when you personally were were given this diagnosis, mm-hmm. I mean, as a as a therapist, you know, what you what you uh, learn from that? Um, well, I'll say this much: when my patients saw me start start to shake, they became much nicer to me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was all I got out of it. <laughs> so, so it saved you a, a little time breaking through their uh, defenses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy, he he may only have you know a couple more months left. With but, us. but, but, how do you feel about the you, you know the struggle with the you know with a chronic situation? Um, I think. Well, here's one major thing that it's done for me, which is it's made me acutely aware of time mm-hmm. because it's a progressive disease. Knock on wood. I don't. I don't have a you know debilitating case of it, but it gets a little worse, a little worse. Mm-hmm. So you're you know you have to think about what's important. I guess is is a good way to mm-hmm. say it because there is this progressive. Um, the other the other thing it does is because when when you have Parkinson's, you don't want to get too exhausted. Mm-hmm. So it's taught me a little bit to modulate my expenditure of energy and to you know hold back a little, which is hard for me yeah but that's good for anybody really you're only given a certain amount i think yeah i know the biggest thing though is has to do with the shadow see my shadow now is the fact that i shake so Mm -hmm. if i'm in front of an audience i'm i'm going to be thinking they see my shadow they see Mm -hmm. me shaking Mm -hmm. you know the various jokes to disarm them you know like you can hold your hand out that's shaking and say what is this what they call this in the parkinson's world what Disco hand. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah right. Sure. Jokes are, you know, they make people comfortable and they, and then they're not going to be like, oh, you know, but if you show that you have a handle on it, yeah, it's good. The, yeah. The test for me is to reveal the Parkinson's. Yeah, sure. No, and that I've gotten a lot out of. And I think it's, uh, it's also uh, beneficial to people who struggle with that shadow. Yes. Other people watching. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it, yeah, that's the amazing thing about being, you know, being honest and not trying to hide you know that type of thing is that you know it's empowering to people who are who are, are either stigmatized or vulnerable because they have the same situation. It gives them hope. That's the uh, the inspirational authority you were talking about, Very and good. it happens involuntarily. Yes, that's correct. You know, there's a law about it, which is if you have people in a room and they each reveal their shadow, which is what they do in twelve step, mm-hmm. higher forces come right into the room, and you could feel it. I I have to agree with you. <laughs> It was great talking to you, Phil. This was fantastic. Can I come back tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe we should wait a week and and you think about- No, no, I want to see you tomorrow. (laughs) Think about what we talked about. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, man. Thanks. All right, that's our show, folks. Uh, Again, if- uh, If you don't check back in with me before the holidays, be careful. Have a good one. Merry, happy. Uh, Don't hurt yourself or others if possible. Keep the emotional abuse to a minimum if you could. Go to WTFPod.com for any WTF pod needs you may have. Get some merch, kick in a few shekels, get on the mailing list. I do do an email blast every Sunday. Uh, What else? Get the app, upgrade to the uh, premium app, and uh, stream all the episodes of WTF. Enjoy. Try to enjoy your life. I, I'm pretty sure it's the only one we have. Uh, wow, well, we're getting heavy. I think Deaf Black Cat is around, but he sort of abandoned me because I uh, the feeding schedule has been disrupted. I need to go work today. Um, today, who's uh, who am I working with today? I, I'll toss out a name. 
Who am I working with today on Marin? That not only Judd Hirsch and Sally Carolman, but David Cross. Just keep that between us, all right? Boomer lives!